Let me pray. You know, Father God, we, we want to say what we've just sung. We want to do what we've declared. We want to rest in you. Lord, we want to do that now as we come and we hear your word. Speak to us and help us to rest in the things that you say. Amen. Well, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for this morning? We're all waiting for something. Sometimes the things are pretty trivial. We've been waiting for half term to come. We're waiting for the next Amazon order. We were waiting for Man United to be good again. Or for Ireland to win the Rugby World Cup. But that's not the kind of waiting I'm thinking of this morning. There are some people here this morning who are waiting for much, much bigger things. And there are things that go right to the heart of who they are, and their waiting is stretching them to their limits and beyond. Maybe you've been in a dead-end job for years, and you're longing for a time when your work will feel meaningful and, and enjoyable. Maybe you've been waiting for years for the right person to come along a person whom you could love, someone who will love you. Maybe you're a parent here this morning and you've been waiting for years for your son or your daughter to come to living faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're waiting for the same for your parent. We're waiting. All of us are waiting for something waiting for God to act, waiting for God to do something, and the waiting is stretching us to our limits and beyond. That's where we find Abram in Genesis 16. He's waiting. We see it immediately, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Think of the heartache. To have waited and waited and waited all these years, to want children all this time, and yet to have that deep, deep desire unmet. The monthly cycle of hope renewed only to be dashed over and over and over again. Abram and Sarah are waiting, and the waiting is stretching them to their limit and beyond. Any couple longing for a child will experience great pain and great heartache. Perhaps you know that from your own experience. Or perhaps you know it from journeying through life with others. To make matters worse for Abram and Sarah, they had the promises of God buzzing around in their heads. God had promised Abram that he would make him a great nation. Great nation? I don't have a single son. So after considerable time with no joy, no no sign of things working out, they're starting to give up hope. 
three weeks ago we were last in the in the Genesis text that was chapter 15 uh, and we saw Abram he, he appeared to be resigned to not having a son back then have a look the early verses he's resigned to not having a son so he's talking about adoption I'll appoint an heir Eliezer of Damascus as though Abram could help God out nope God says a son's coming from your own body he'll be your heir keep waiting but it's hard to just to just sit and to wait and to wait and to wait whenever we're living with these unbearable tensions we need to know that we're doing all that we can to make sure that things work out and, and Sarah certainly wanted to do her best uh, with the tension she was facing so she came up with her scheme and she suggested it to Abram God hasn't allowed me to have children take my servant Hagar the Egyptian and see if you can build a family through her that sounds stranger to our ears than it would have to to people in Abram's time or, or maybe even to a lot of his subsequent readers this kind of surrogacy was pretty common practice. Uh, you might remember as well that Abram had spent time in Egypt. You might remember that Pharaoh had been generous and given him gifts as he left Egypt. It's, it's quite possible that Hagar, this Egyptian slave, came into Abram's household back then. What Sarah's suggesting here isn't particularly scandalous on its own terms. She's simply looking for a convenient solution to their heartbreaking situation notice too that she's not doing this on a whim we read verse 3 that Sarah gave Hagar to Abram after they'd been in Canaan for 10 years 10 years of waiting for God to keep his promise surely it's understandable then that Sarah and Abram have decided to take the matter into their own hands after all that waiting, it's time to help God out. When we read a passage like this, we're naturally asking ourselves about Abram and Sarah's actions. Were they right to do what they did? And, and it's one of the riches, I think, of many of these Old Testament narratives that they, they don't always tell us in so many words whether a person has done right or wrong. Here in Genesis 16, rather than the narrator telling us Abram was good or Sarah was bad, the narrator invites us to look much more closely at the text before it yields up some subtle strands of evidence that Abram and Sarah are not, at this point, trusting in God. Let me point out a couple of these strands quickly. Look carefully at the names the narrator gives to the female characters. So in verse 1, Sarah is referred to as Abram's wife, emphasizing, I think, that she is his rightful partner. It also implies that God's promise to Abram of a son coming from his own body also applies to Sarah, his wife, with whom he is one flesh. Sarah is the rightful mother of Abram's children. Notice as well that Sarah is referred to as Hagar's mistress, verse 4. Uh, and that emphasizes her authority over Hagar. 
And in contrast, Hagar's repeatedly referred to as Sarah's maidservant, emphasizing her rightful position of submission. So these names subtly remind us that Sarah is Abram's wife and equal, with whom he is one flesh. Sarah is the one who, through whom God will keep his promises. If the names hint at Abram and Sarah's wrongdoing, then, then the absence of God in the whole scene implicates them, I think, beyond doubt. There's no indication here that God communicated with Sarah before she went to Abram with her scheme. She's acting entirely independently of God. As for Abram, it's the voice of Sarah that's prompting him, not the voice of God. Sarah's scheme here is contrived without paying attention to God, and it's in stark contrast to Abram's behavior in the previous chapter. Have a look. Verses 2 to 4 of chapter 15, when we read there, we get the impression that Abram's conversing with God about their, their childlessness, about this option of adopting a son. If Sarah had been as close to God and had been giving the same attention to God's leading and guiding, we can be sure that things would have worked out very differently. God would have ruled out this scheme of surrogate motherhood for her in the same way that he'd ruled out the scheme of adoption for Abram in the previous chapter. Although it's implied throughout the story more than stated outright, there's little doubt in the end that Abram and Sarah are acting without faith in God. In some ways, the scene is a little bit like chapter 12. When the famine struck the land, Abram and Sarah left without God's authorization. They were acting out of fear and not faith. Now, when God delays the promised son, again they act without his authorization, and again they're acting without, with, with fear rather than with faith. They still have our sympathies though, don't they? Abram and Sarah. In the final analysis, Abram and Sarah are guilty of a sin here that we might not regard as a sin at all. All they're trying to do is help God out. The deep faith that God is developing in Abram is momentarily undermined by Sarah's attempts here to be helpful. And, and that's a common enough scenario in the life of faith. With his usual deep insight, Eugene Peterson warns, that faith has as much to fear from good intentions as evil opposition. That's interesting. If he's right about that, it means we could be getting a whole lot of stuff wrong through our good intentions. As I reflected on that, I thought that seems very possible. The voice of Sarah, no matter how sincere or well-meant in this story, is not the voice of God. Some of us here this morning are waiting. 
We've been waiting for what seems like forever, and frankly, we don't know if we can wait much longer. Whatever faith we have in God, it is beginning to give way to fear, and we're ready to start taking things into our own hands and to start helping God out. Friends, can I encourage you to keep trusting in the goodness of God? At this time, when it would be so easy to find a solution outside of God's will, recommit yourself to walking in his ways and in his will. At this time when communication with God seems so difficult, when he seems so distant, and it would be easy to act independently and to take matters into your own hands, then be patient. Keep believing that God has your best in mind. Keep believing that he plans to prosper you and not to harm you. This kind of waiting that I'm talking about seems almost impossible. But it can be done. And, and when it is done, it brings great glory to God. There, there's a kind of waiting. It, it's a crucible where faith is formed. It's a crucible where faith that already exists is deepened and refined. Some of us are learning that it's no small thing to stake everything on the goodness of God. Whenever we take matters into our own hands, whenever we live outside of the will of God, the outcomes are never good. Have a look at the, the story. I say the outcomes are never good. Actually, the scheme worked, didn't it? Verse 4. Hagar conceived. The scheme worked. But the results were unhappy. Look at verses 5 and 6. First of all, Hagar comes into conflict with Sarah. Then Sarah comes into conflict with Abram. And finally, Sarah retaliates and oppresses Hagar. It's a domestic nightmare. They've stepped out of the will of God. Abram and Sarah have got exactly what they wanted. They have a son by Hagar, and no sooner do they have exactly what they wanted than they discover that they don't like what they wanted. Has that ever happened to you? There's a pattern with these things. When we step out of the will of God, we do so because we think we're going to make life better. Make no mistake about it, when we step out of the will of God, life won't be better. It will be worse. It will always be worse. The best laid schemes of mice and men oft go awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Robbie Burns. Rabbi Burns wasn't, I don't think, talking about the life of faith when he penned his famous poem to a mouse. But he captures the experience of faithless Abram and Sarah. Their best laid schemes have gone awry. 
what promised joy leads only to grief and pain. I don't know whether you noticed it as we read chapter 16, but it divides very easily into two distinct scenes. The opening scene, which takes place, I'm imagining a large campsite that's Abram's home, focuses on Abram and Sarah's machinations to try and get to try and help God out. For all the hustle and bustle of that place, it's marked by an absence. God is absent. God is absent because Sarah and Abraham have decided to move ahead without him. He's not mentioned. The second scene, which takes up the remainder of the chapter, takes place in the desert. The focus is a rather helpless, pregnant, runaway slave, Hagar. In a surprising turn of events, the desert, normally a place of isolation, becomes the place of the presence of God. It's wonderful to see how God comes close and becomes involved in the scene. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. So Hagar has fled from Abram and Sarah, from their household, because Sarah's been abusing her. Not surprisingly, maybe, she's on the road to Egypt. She's heading home. The angel finds her. Did you see that? Could it be that he was looking for her? Isn't that wonderful? God sending his messenger for this sorry young woman in this seemingly God-forsaken place, that's enough to give any of us hope, those of us who feel like we're in a God-forsaken place. The angel asks her what she's up to. Where have you come from? What's been happening? Where are you going? What is it you're hoping for? When he hears about the sorry state of affairs, he encourages her to go back to Sarah and to submit to her authority. The angel encourages her to remain in the story. Isn't that wonderful? This unexpected moment of God's grace. Up to this point in the story, Hagar has been nothing more than a a pawn in Sarah and Abram's plans. She's, She's certainly been sinned against. But she's also sinned against others. She's caused Sarah grief with her defiance. Hagar, we're expecting, is going to be written out of the story at this point. Discarded in the purposes of God. But instead, God reaches out to her in great compassion. God of the outsider. God of the oppressed. God of the sinner. The angel doesn't just give Hagar a command saying, go back to where you came from. Gives her a promise, verse 10. I'll increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. Verse 11, he elaborates in the promise that the descendants will be through the son she's now bearing, Ishmael. In in some ways, the promise to Hagar is very like the promise to Abram and Sarah, isn't it? 
promise of a son, he'll be the first of many descendants. But there's one significant difference. The promise to Hagar is simply that she'll have many descendants. The promise to Abram is that his numerous descendants will bless the whole world. You see, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, will come in the line of Isaac, not of Ishmael. I think the angel's words to Hagar that day in the desert must have brought her great comfort. But as we read on verse 12, we see that in the midst of the comfort, there's a prophecy of conflict. Sarah's lack of faith and her scheming is going to wreak havoc through centuries and millennia. The events of the last three weeks in Israel and Palestine keep this prophecy from Genesis 16 ever current. Friends, you see, we can't escape the consequences of other people's sins. And they can't escape the consequences of ours. Every human being we all live under the judgment of God and we all need his mercy. Always. Notice how Hagar responds to the angel's visitation. She receives it as a visit from God. In what I consider to be one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture, she says, you are the God who sees me. Don't you just love that? This young girl, this foreigner, who's become a problem in her community, pregnant at the wrong time and in the wrong way, this wanderer in the desert, at just that moment when she has no one else to count on, when she doesn't know what to do or where to go, she realizes that God sees her. Hagar has this strong sense there in the desert that, that God sees her. Tell me this. Do you think it was only her that God sees? What about Sarah back in the camp in her ongoing pain? What about Abram, shaken in his faith and confused? Did God see them? Of course he did. He sees Hagar, he sees Sarah, he sees Abram, he sees that woman with the, the flow of blood in that huge crowd. That tax collector over there in his booth. That other one up there in the tree. He saw children. He saw them all. And he sees us all. Friends, this is one of the most beautiful and the most important things that I could ever tell you about our God. He sees you. I've known many times in my life when it's meant the world to me to know that I'm seen 
by the living God. When the girl I loved didn't love me, when I was struggling with a a demanding career and exams and felt entirely overwhelmed for week after week and month after month, God saw me. When I was far from family and friends, God saw me at the ends of the earth. For those times when my motivations have been questioned and people who don't see what's going on come to judgments about me, he sees. When my reputation's unfairly tarnished by gossip and slander, he sees. Like Hagar in the desert, misunderstood by people who want to misunderstand, he sees. When no one else does, and what no one else does, he always sees the right way of it. He is the God who sees you. Brothers and sisters, whether you're a a Sarah who's made a mess of her own life or a Hagar who's had someone else make a mess of your life or an Abram who's waiting and waiting and waiting, please know this. You have a God who sees you. He is looking for you and he sees you. And he sees you as much as he sees other people whom you consider to be more influential or who are perhaps more celebrated or or seem more successful. That, That stuff doesn't matter to him. You have a God who is looking for you and who sees you and who's moving towards you in grace today and longs to save you. Let's bring this to a close. Chapter 16, it's added another dramatic twist to this story of Abram's growing faith in God. It seems you see that God is intent in this story to eliminate every means but a miracle to bring about the birth of the son he's promised. In chapter 15, we saw how God rejected Abram's adoption plan. Today, we've seen how God rejects Sarah's scheme of surrogacy. It seems that God's not going to allow this birth of a promised son until he's taken away every opportunity for that birth to happen, until the birth becomes impossible. You see, God wants Abram and all people of faith who follow Abram to understand that his promises are worked out through miracles of grace. If God is to bless Abram, it won't be because Abram's helped him out. It's not true in the end what we say. We say that God helps those who help themselves. In the life of faith, we can't help ourselves. We can't help God. It's as Paul famously put it, it's all of God, it's all of grace. It is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God.
Friends, we start this life when we are saved by grace. Every moment of every day that we continue in life with Jesus Christ, we continue by grace. We can't help God out. Not ever. But what we can do is wait on him and live by faith. Let me pray. Father God, I long to grow in friendship with you. So Lord, I pray that you would hone my senses. Make me sensitive to your presence and your guidance. When I'm waiting, and the waiting is stretching me to the limits and beyond, when I'm tempted to, to take matters into my own hands and to live by my own schemes. Remind me that you see me. Call me back to the life of faith. And Lord, as I grow in my understanding that I am seen by you, help me to truly see others too. Help us as a church family here in Hamilton Road to see people as you do. Those who join us in our services and our gatherings, our neighbors and our friends, those with whom we share our lives and this city. Help us to see them as you do with your eyes. Amen.